it's okay to stay connected sometimes to those losses. And that moving on is not is a misnomer, right? It's like more like moving with. Loss comes in many forms, and giving yourself time and space to grieve while also parenting can be really challenging. Whether you're experiencing secondary infertility, miscarriages, or unsuccessful IVF attempts, struggling to become a parent a second or third time around can lead to some unique personal and social challenges. Here to offer strategies to cope and resources for support is Dr. Shara Brofman. Dr. Shara is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in the greater New York City metro area, and she specializes in reproductive and perinatal mental health. Not all family planning is easy, and I really hope this episode will help anyone experiencing this to understand that there's no need for shame or guilt, and most importantly, that you don't need to go through it alone. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hey, everybody. We are super lucky today. We have an exceptional guest. Dr. Shara Brofman is here. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. She is a friend and colleague of mine, and she specializes in reproductive and perinatal mental health. And we are going to get a really important lot of information from her today. And I'm so happy. Thank you for agreeing to be on that episode. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, can you just start off by sharing a little bit about the work that you do and how you came to specialize in this area? Sure. So I see, um, I see a lot of different, a, a range of issues. So um, mostly along the lines of reproductive, mental health, family building, perinatal mental health. So before, during, after pregnancy, but not all reproductive experiences involve pregnancy. So, you know, all sorts of family building um, junctures where, where something may not have gone as expected or someone has been through a loss or a trauma, or it's um, an adjustment. It's just it's an adjustment process, no matter what. So I support people through a range of issues related to um, fertility, infertility, third party reproduction, um, pregnancy, family building without children, um, perinatal loss, um, termination for medical reasons, um, all sorts of you know related. Uh, related experiences. It's all, all of the above. And, and that's not, yeah. not all inclusive. Yeah. And it's, it's really rich work. It's also very hard work. I mean, I think when you specialize, especially when, you know, we're talking today a lot about parenting after infertility or parenting after loss, this is heavy work. Right. It can't, I mean, it can, it can be, it's also very deeply meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's meaningful. I, I, I have a background in developmental psychology and in child development. And so I always think of people in terms of the lifespan. Um, and so when people are coming to me at, at whatever age, I, I do see um, adults, but I always think of problems, people, you know, uh, stressors people are having and ways of coping across in terms of life, the lifespan development. 
Yeah. Um, and so it's meaningful sometimes to be with people across multiple junctures in that process. And so sometimes, you know, there are different pieces to the story that emerge and they may not be the ending that's expected, but it can be meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, it's really an, at the risk of sounding cheesy, you know, it's me, it's, a, it's an honor to be with people through, through those experiences and people have such strength that, that, that they also don't know about that, that emerges. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm thinking about who's listening to this podcast right now and, you know, it's a parenting podcast. It's about child development. So most of the people who are listening to the podcast are parents. Um, and, but just because you have a child right now, or just because you are, have built a family, it doesn't mean that that was an easy process or that, that there wasn't some level of pain or struggle to get to that point. And, you know, in working with families who have struggled with infertility challenges, what are some of the impacts you've seen on like their mental health, on the way that they then proceed in parenthood if they are able to have a child? Like what are some of the challenges you have kind of observed in in people who've gone through that? Sure, sure. I mean, I think it both in terms of... Um, you know, I might say, I, I might say infertility, but also just people building families via reproductive technology, assisted reproductive technology, by the way, which may not be because of infertility and maybe mm-hmm. because of, you know, I work with a diverse group of family structures. So maybe somebody, you know, a, a same sex couple went through um, various uh, family building via technology. And it's also such a, can be such a stressful process and involve law. So I guess I wanted to, to not, uh, to be inclusive. Um, but so whether it's, you know, fertility uh, experiences, infertility and or loss, um, it can really kind of change how people think about themselves, others and the world. I mean, that sounds kind of huge, but it it can be. Um, Mm -hmm. How does one cope through adversity? Uh, To whom does one go when one needs support? Um, you know, I kind of, what does one think about one's identity? I'm a person who can handle things. I'm a person who can plan. I'm a person, you know, I hear, well, we had a certain plan and this didn't go as, as planned and the lack of control, the, um, unfortunately, you know, traumas that can occur through the process and then kind of not being able to unknow that, oh, something bad can happen. Um, like kind of people will describe, you know, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. I now have what I was hoping for. And I also feel like something bad's going to happen. I feel a sense Mm. of, um, you know, and they're not, they're not wrong that something bad can happen. Right. So it's almost um, like this learned dread. It can be, it can, or, you know, just, and I work a lot with ideas related to acceptance and mindfulness of that mindset, not, not to, uh, fail to acknowledge hope and positive potential positive outcomes and all of those things, but but that the negative pieces are are sometimes part of this, and you can't just kind of um, rationalize out of that. Yeah, I think friends and family members often try to <laughs> um, in trying to help, but but right. I wonder if that's also another like theme that people who've gone through this might also you know express like when they're working with you or they're having sort of a therapeutic intervention to support them where they're like, 
I'm so sick of people just trying to tell me to like look on the bright side or everything happens for a reason or there's some silver lining in this. And like perhaps there could be, but that's not really always the place someone wants to sit in every moment. Right. It's so, I think it's so hard. I think family members are doing their best to be supportive and they don't know how to contain their own anxiety. I mean, I sometimes make a joke, well, it's not their session, but let's assume that maybe they have some, you just as a way to tolerate those kinds of questions. You can't, you Mm -hmm. can't control what questions or statements people make uh, or ask Mm -hmm. or make, but, but um, that, that I think it can be hard for family and friends, coworkers, you know, to, to, to not, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to code right. this. A, a, a perinatal loss, for example, that's still very much with someone, even if, you know, and maybe they haven't, um, maybe the story f- feels unresolved or maybe the story is resolved, but that loss will never go away. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. and, and, and someone, you know, saying, oh, but, you know, things are normal now. And people don't know, people aren't therapists, like people who aren't therapists don't know what to say. Like, wow, that's really that sounds so hard. I'm so sorry you're going through that. And they don't have to say much more than that, but they work so hard to come up with all these aphorisms and toxic positivity. And yeah. um, And I think it's a product too of a a society that has notoriously kind of been afraid of grief and death and loss and pain. And this, you know, this reminds me of actually an episode that I did with um, Heather Hogan, who's a death doula. And we talked all about uh, this like idea of like death being so under accessible to most people because we just aren't, we are not exposed to it. We don't talk about it. We don't have language for it. And so when we go through a loss, the people in our lives as loving, as much love as they may have for us and as much, you know, compassion for our pain they may have, they don't have language. They don't understand what to do with their feelings about it. And so we get this like awkward, anxious, icky, like attempts to make us feel better. Mm -hmm. Like, please make this go away. I want you to not be in this pain. That's right. That's right. I think that's that's exactly right. I think they, it's hard for them to be with, with the pain. And I think that's right. I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, how we talk about death and loss and can we be with grief? Can we be in the lack of resolve in the, in the idea of, you know, there's not really a problem solving strategy right in this moment um, and helping people to engage in things that are meaningful or rituals that help them to process those kinds of experiences. They're really... Um, there are some cultures uh, or faiths that uh, where it's more clear sort of what to do with a perinatal loss, but mm. not all. And wh- what do you do? You know, when someone has lived a life and died, there is a process, there is a ritual, whether it's faith-based or community-based, it's usually not alone. Um, yeah. what, do you, what, what can be done, you know, whether it's, you know, a cremation or a of a memorial service or burial, there's like a thing. So there's a thing that people know how to do. And, and with these kinds of losses, oh, this IVF transfer didn't work. Or I had a chemical pregnancy. I had a loss at six, 10, 12, 18, 38 weeks. Uh, You know, what do you do um, with those losses and family members and friends? I think despite their best, like they sort of don't, no one knows what to do. 
Right. Right. And it's because of that, I think we end up having to feel if we are going through this ourselves, like, like loneliness and aloneness, like you said, but also a sort of like burden of having to reinvent the wheel every time. There's no template for this. There's no system for this. There's no support for this. And not to say that there is no support and people can't get support or the people in our lives will not try to support us, but there isn't like a set of steps that is socially understood that everyone kind of just knows to follow. Like you said, for the less ambiguous loss, Mm -hmm. you know, someone is born, someone's lived, someone dies. We, we as a society have ways that we all kind of have an agreed upon set of steps. Right. And kind of cross-culturally. Right. Yes. Right. And that's different for when it's a more ambiguous loss. Right. And then when you're, when you're sort of parenting, having gone through something like that, or you're still going through it simultaneously, how do you, how do you manage all of that? Right. And it can be, it can all be very isolating. And if you're a person who used to cope by reaching out socially, but this feels harder for various reasons or more private, that that's, that can also be hard. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it's just like, even if you are someone who's comfortable asking for help, if there isn't the thing you ask of a person, like, you know, I'm Jewish, we sit Shiva, you know, like, we just know it's people just show up at your house, they just know to do it. And like, it's different, you don't have there isn't a language for asking for help for this stuff in the same way that there is. Um, right. And people like, will, will will minimize and say, oh, but you were only, you know, you weren't that far. Like, you'll have another. You can have another. Oh, but it's, you know, at least, it, oh, the IVF transfer didn't work. Well, you could, you know, do another retrieval. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that's possible and maybe it isn't, by the way. And um, it's so, you know, uh, so sometimes I help patients themselves to also recognize you know, to to not minimize it themselves. You know, people will say, yeah. "Well, I don't know if it's so bad. My sister had such a terrible story. I I, I don't did it. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time." You know, it, it, or um, sometimes people minimize their own experiences. Yeah. So if someone's listening, who's like, "Oh, yeah, definitely, that's me." I've had a really hard time kind of allowing myself permission to have grief here. Um, what would you? suggest like what are some ways some reframes or some strategies to shift that sure sure I mean I think I sometimes I mean I do by the way like and you know it's interesting you're asking me about grief and I'm going to comment on humor which seems like a bit of a it seems like a bit of a um non sequitur or something but I do find that's another thing by the way that I find meaningful meaningful about working with people there are ways um, to, there are ways to kind of integrate some lightness and some humor, even, I mean, in, in, inappropriate ways, but Mm -hmm. so I don't want to scare people. I make the joke that I don't want to scare people in saying, you know, the grief may always be there. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, kind of a a negative or a doom and gloom kind of idea, but actually on, on the contrary, I think it, it can actually be a relief because people expect that it should have gone away. And people, um, family members may say, well, you know, why are you still grieving? It was a while ago. I think the question is, you know, the, in- the intensity of it and, um, and the intensity of it and maybe the frequency of when it comes in or how long it lasts, and that is likely to change. So mm-hmm. I think people can feel some relief in framing 
the grief as, you know, as I'm, I know you say, uh, you know, agree with philosophically, you know, feel, I mean, feelings are temporary and that the intensity of this experience is, is um, likely temporary. And so people can kind of make space for grief to come and go. It may come and go throughout their whole lives. There's a wonderful concept and it did turn into a bit of an internet meme recently. I'm not sure how it kind of reemerged, but it's called Growing Around Grief. Mm. And it was coined, I think, by um, a therapist, Lois Tonkin, in, in an article in the 90s from a New Zealand publication um, that shared someone's experience being in a grief group. Mm-hmm. Do, you know, do you know this? No, this I'm not familiar. Growing. I'm so curious. So sometimes people like this idea. So it's it's certainly not my. I take zero credit for this concept. It's a, it's a, I find it to be a meaningful concept. But the the way this concept is described is that a, a particular participant in a grief support group uh, had a loss, and this this person felt that she sort of drew visually. Okay, this is how I think my experience of grief is going to go. I think it's kind of like a circle within another circle. And at the, as the loss at at the sort of, when the loss is acute or when it's just happened or there's something traumatic that's happening in the loss, the little circle, I hope this is making sense. The little circle inside the big circle is is kind of taking up that whole larger circle. Mm -hmm. Um, And this group participant was saying, you know, I imagine how it's going to be as time passes is that inner circle is going to shrink and it won't feel as hard. And she said later in the group, you know, as a matter of fact, that's not actually how I experienced grief. What I actually experienced is that that inner circle never changed size or shape. Mm. But in that, in fact, my life around it, that circle around it grew. Oh, and that's so, like that, so beautiful. I love, I, I like the concept too. So that, she began to have more experiences. She met people who never knew this person. She just had other, you know, things that went on in her life, good and bad, that had nothing to do with the experience, or it was just she 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 was growing around it. But that experience was sort of still there. And when it when she was reminded of it, it still really hurt. Yeah, but that's like the most permission-giving metaphor because I think it gives people both hope that the the ratio of mm-hmm. this pain to my life will in fact change, mm-hmm. but the substantialness of this loss will not. Right. And there's something very validating, I think, in the permission to say, this loss never has to get smaller. This grief never has to get smaller because honestly, how can it? It's very real and it shouldn't change necessarily over time, but the impact of it on my life, because the ratio of its impact to my life as a whole will change. And so therefore my experience of pain will shift. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But it's like, oh, this is definitely, there's permission for this grief or loss to stay this exact same size forever because it's that real forever. That's like really beautiful. I really love that. Sure. I, I do too. And again, I really, I said, certainly not my idea, but I, I find it so helpful. I agree. That's it's so well, art, how you articulated that is so powerful that it leaves space for, for a three-dimensional experience of grief as, as integrating. That's really the word is, is mm-hmm. integrating these experiences in one's life story. 
without having to minimize them. Right. In, which and integrated. So perfect. Right. But integrated without minimization. And for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the term integration, it's kind of a big concept, but in a nutshell, integration is com- sort of combining all the pieces of our identity to form a single integrated sense of self. All the parts of us, all of our experiences and our feelings as a single whole unit. Um, Dr. Dan Siegel, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, he has a ton of incredible resources on this idea as well. So he's, I feel like if you're interested in this concept of integration, he's worth looking at or checking out that episode. But, but in this context, it's the minimization piece that I really think is so key here. This person in this story, at the beginning, her conception of how her grief would unfold would that this, this, the pain and the grief would become minimized. And so I think we do have this sort of implicit direction in our directives in our life, in our world, like the pain, we need to minimize the pain. We need to minimize the grief. That's the, that's the task. That's the job over time. Mm -hmm. And really, in fact, no, it's not. It's to keep growing in spite Mm -hmm. of this very real pain Mm -hmm. that is not, does not need to be minimized for us to continue to grow. Right. And as a result of the growth, the ratio of that pain in my life is going to just become a smaller impact because we are integrating all these other pieces of our identity and our experience right, and our relationships exactly. into that bigger circle. So there's the integration without the minimization of the grief, which I think is so beautiful. I think I think that's a, that's exactly right. And there are, by the way, other related concepts that have to do with this with this same idea. This this is only one of them. Um, I think you also made me think of something else that I think is important. If someone has had a loss, by the way. Um, we know that when someone has lived and died in most cultures, it is deeply important to remain connected to that person in some way, in a relational way, whether it's a spiritual way, whatever it means to the individual person is that it's perfectly healthy, not at the expense of living one's life, but it's healthy to remain connected to that person, to what they valued, um, to remember them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, some people will say, you know, I lost a pregnancy or I lost a newborn. You know, I didn't know that I, that it, it, the, it was it was the, the potential of what could have been this this embryo that I, I lost, you know, and and it's a potential for what could have been. But I don't want to I don't want to forget, you know, like I what if I want to hold on to the ultrasound photo or what if and I st- and I have my a healthy live child and also I want to, you know, that kind of idea. Mm-hmm or I don't have a, a, a healthy child and I want to remain connected and that that can be okay. And there are various things people can do um, where, you know, where, whether it's a journal or a box or a group or um, a, a, an annual ritual or something um, yeah. that might be meaningful for people to, it's okay to stay connected sometimes to those losses. Yeah. And, and that moving on is not, is a misnomer, right? Yeah. Like more like moving with. Yes. Oh, I like that. Moving with. That's a colleague's also. (laughs) That's not mine either. (laughs) But I think it's true that like, yeah, like we, if we're parenting after a loss, you know, however we ended up in this place that we're at right now, we're not, we're not parenting just the children that are here with us in the flesh, right? Where we have memories of either the fantasy of what could have mm-hmm. been right. or the loss that really was. And 
I do think like, you know, when you talk about like trauma work Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and therapy for trauma, um, creating a narrative, Mm -hmm. telling the Mm -hmm. story, Mm -hmm. making sense of it, having language, explicit language around it is very healing. And so I think any ways we can encourage parents who have experienced any kind of loss, however ambiguous it may be, however concrete it may be, um, whether it was the loss of a, you know, the transfer didn't work or I got no eggs when I tried to do mm-hmm. an, you know, an egg harvesting mm-hmm. procedure. Those are losses. And so to be able to tell the story mm-hmm. and to f- feel that there's some sense of like meaning making, it doesn't need to be that there's like a product at the end of it of any sort, but like that there's some way that we can make meaning of this experience for us and understand it and have language around it. Like it's a big way that we don't get stuck in traumatic experiences and that we can move. Yes. I love that to not get stuck. That's so important. And what you bring up about the story is so important. There's there's a term I I love to integrate called the, the reproductive story. Um, which mm-hmm. is from, um, it's from a book called Reproductive Trauma by Janet Jaffe and Martha Diamond, um, who are reproductive psychologists in San Diego. And it, that's exactly it. The idea of the reproductive story, you know, here's how I imagined it. Here's where it didn't go as expected. And it all, I, I always say it always goes in some unexpected way. Sometimes it's a more comfortable way than others. There could be pleasant surprises. There could be terribly challenging surprises. Um, and, and how do I, can I kind of edit the chapter? That's Dr. Jaffe's idea of kind of, can I edit the story to, to, to how it is now? And while integrating the loss of what chapter I hoped for, or here's the new chapter, um, there's, and there's, there's another term that I find really helpful and to help people to kind of frame and not get stuck, which is, um, this wonderful idea called reproductive identity. It's Mm. a new, I love that. So it's a new, fairly new concept from um, two years ago, Dr. Arlie Athan, who's at Teachers College at Columbia, um, uh, developed this concept of reproductive identity to encapsulate all kind of all reproductive experiences, whether they involve children or not, by the way, as an identity and as a sort of as a developmental continuum like mm-hmm. I am a person who will definitely have children. I'm a person who will definitely not have children. I'm a person that I'm not sure. I'm ambivalent, which, by the way, is most people in some capacity. Yeah. Um, I will. I always imagine. You know, I'm uh, a person who will be pregnant. I'm a person who won't be pregnant. You know, like these, all mm-hmm. these kind of conflict, all these expectations about identity, and that identity can shift over time and allowing room. Um, because, for, because really, you know, when we're talking about these junctures, you know, when maybe people come to therapy or people have a loss or trauma there, something hasn't gone as expected, but also it's a conflict of identity. Yeah. Like I'm not a person who has a hard time with things. I'm not a person I'm, or whatever, whatever it might be. And, or whether it's about gender, sexuality, you know, how does that intersect with reproductive identity? And it, it allows room. It makes room. Yeah. And it gives people permission to both tell and edit yeah. their story. Again, is like not necessarily maybe the story of the the process, but the story of like who I am and how I how I interpret the world around me, how I right. judge myself, 
how I see myself, how I expect others to see me. Like that's also part of our narrative. Right. And am I a parent now? So if, if people are listening who are parents, did they once identify, you know, perhaps prior to becoming a parent or perhaps while being a parent and experiencing a second, you know, uh, another fertility experience or loss, um, there, there was some sort of, um, identity around that. Like, you know, people will talk about the, the, I'm a, I'm a fertility warrior, or I'm part Mm -hmm. of such and such a social media group, or, well, I was in a support group specifically for miscarriage. And I really connected with those people. And now I'm pregnant and they're not. And how do I belong? And like all of these Mm -hmm. kind of, and now I'm a parent, but I really had this identity as someone, well, maybe I won't be a parent. Mm -hmm. And, um, just it's so it's so complicated, but it's so can be so hard in relationships, which we yes. need so much to go through this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I imagine that like infertility issues, certainly law, both all of the all of the above can put a huge strain on a partnership. Sure, and also our our relationships with other people in our lives. But I would think especially a partnership. It, it absolutely can, right? There's so much literature on just how it can strain partnerships um, and also friendships and relationships with other family and um, how to integrate all these complicated feelings, how to integrate, you know, there's a lot online about gratitude and, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of great literature on gratitude and can I be grateful for my experience and also be have and also experience loss or, and also complain. I think I use the, a lot of dialectics in therapies that, you know, can I also have these kind of competing experiences and, and to come back to the idea of partnership, what if the two partners are having very different experiences of what happened or what is happening or different ways of coping or different ways of talking about it? Um, and that's pretty common. People are different. How do then some, can the partners kind of do the butt heads or can they integrate what they're each holding of the experience. Um, yeah. It can create think, conflict. It could create strength too. Yeah. And, but I think this idea of a dialectic is very important. And I imagine that p- people listening might not know what a dialectic oh, is. Sure. And I mean, you and I <laughs> I live our lives working on things around right. dialectic. So let's, ex- can we explain it to people? Because sure. it's a very therapeutic, it's a very useful therapeutic concept. Sure. Sure. Do you, do you want, I, I can, no. we can, we can maybe both. I mean, I'm so, so I, I should give the disclaimer that I'm certainly not um, a philosopher, but um, how I, certainly how I use it in therapy is, is, is the idea that, you know, from two seemingly opposite truths coming together, we can create a new truth, kind of integrating both of those truths, which seem like they can't exist together. I mean, that's sort of one way of uh, saying yeah. it um, in yeah. an accessible way. I mean, Um, and so I can be unhappy that I had to go through so much to get here and I can be happy to be here. Um, there was an article, there were, there were two articles the New York times ran in the past several years. Um, one is a wonderful article called, um, the lasting trauma of infertility by Regina Townsend, um, which I have notes here is from 2019, fall 2019, the lasting trauma of infertility. And she talks about having gone through quite a lot um, and then having her son and at his third birthday still feeling the trauma and the loss. Um, mm-hmm. And not to say that she couldn't also feel happiness at his third yeah. birthday. 
Um, but that that was okay, that she wanted to name that, that how could I be on, how could I be sad and happy at his birthday? Yeah. 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 Two things can be true at the same time, even if they feel so utterly incompatible. Right. And like, I think that if we can wrap our head around that, like I spend a lot of my time with my kids trying to teach that concept. Like I think that's a very handy parenting strategy in life because it's such a, if you understand that essence of the human condition and can tolerate how uncomfortable and confusing it is, you are going to be likely a healthier human being. You're going to just be a more resilient person because I think one of the things that can lead if sort of like repeated, 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 repeated kind of butting heads of like not being able to tolerate that reality of life is a lot of defenses to to prevent us from having to feel that conflict. So we we disconnect, we avoid, we deny, we cut off, you know, in extreme cases we dissociate. Like that's all because that conflicting feeling of I am both terrified and hopeful. I am furious and in love. I am so heartbroken and yet so happy. Like those are really just being in conflict like that is as a human being is a very uncomfortable thing. And so we tend to want to not feel that discomfort. And if we don't understand what's going on and have a language for it to say, oh, hey, this is me feeling two competing feelings at once that I can, this is okay. This is normal. This makes sense. I don't have to cut one off to be able to have access to the other allows us to be more integrated as you were saying, like it allows us to have just a, I don't know, more comfort with the discomfort of life. And so like I teach my kids that all the time. And my kid will be like, I don't want to go to school today. And I'll be like, well, this part of you right here maybe doesn't feel like leaving the house because it's so cozy and warm in here. And maybe like, and I'll like poke at his ear, you know, and I'll, and I'll poke at his elbow and be like, this part of you loves the sand pit at recess. Oh, and this part of you right here, your little knee that part really loves when it's like free choice time in your classroom. So it's like, but like that is a dialectic. He can, he can not want to go and he can go. (laughs) And he can want to go. Like he can can want to go. And both are true. And like, and we can move fluidly between these places or we can like get stuck and cut ourselves off from the complexity of it all. And like, you know, I think this is super applicable for what we're talking about, like in almost more profound way, because the depths of the conflict is so profound, right? Like, yes, yes it's so to have intimate. experienced the loss of a child and then to have a child and to be in conflict between how much pain you are in and how much gratitude and love you are feeling is can feel it can cause us to feel tremendous guilt, yes. shame, right? Right? How could I be relishing in this joy when I have experienced what I experienced and like, shouldn't right. I be mourning forever? And right. like, how, how does that play right. out in the work you do with parents? Right. I'm so it, curious. It can, right. I mean, it can, it's, it's, and I think it is just about, I love what you said about you know, um, how these ways of holding these competing, seemingly competing truths can help us with that inevitable discomfort. And, and it can, and it can, um, cultivate flexibility, like psychological Mm -hmm. flexibility, um, 
And so, yes, I mean, I, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, when, you know, people, let's say, let's say somebody's going through IVF and maybe um, ha- has a living child. And it's like, you know, I don't know if I want to pursue another cycle, but I thought I wanted this. I should want, I should want to pursue, you know, I, do I want this? Do I not want this? It's like, well, maybe it's both. And maybe it's mm-hmm. also just so hard. Um, I think that's right. I think sometimes people are so used to, you know, the brain I think as psychologists, we know about this kind of quote unquote problem with the brain that we want to categorize. And it so often helps us to categorize and create shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And then with these experiences, you have to just help people really um, hold these multiple truths. But yes, it can. It can result in feelings of guilt or shame or um, being abnormal uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if other people, you must think I'm crazy saying all of this. And I'm like, it's nodding. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I don't, I never, I don't know anyone else who's experienced it. You know, I work by the way with many with men going through, uh, you know, men, people of all genders, going identities going through these experiences. And so it's, these things are often, um, categorized as women's issues. And I have many, many thoughts on why that's a disservice um, in language. And so, um, you know, I'm just thinking of, for example, male factor infertility. I I, I must be the only one, Um, you know, so like the idea of feeling um, like something, you know, being being isolated or it can result in those feelings. Yeah. Um, and I think helping too, yeah, some psychoeducation, like helping people to understand what even is normal um, yeah. is helpful. And how common people. it is. I mean, like maybe we should talk a little bit too about how just profoundly common this is. And and to a lot of people that might feel surprising because people don't talk about this stuff. There is so much, you know, in ex- in some places shame, but in other places just a lack of, I don't know, I just don't even know how to talk. It's too hard to talk about it. It's just easier not to. Like, mm-hmm. you know, some of it's just avoidance for self-preservation. Some of it is deep and profound shame. Um, some of it's fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't hear how common, I think it's becoming a little bit more common for people to share their stories of infertility and of loss and of secondary infertility and and all of the stuff that fits right. in this big boat. Right. Um, egg, and, egg and sperm and embryo donation and mm-hmm. surrogacy. Um, all the, you know, it may be uh, part of the story, maybe. And by the way, I always, I really um, encourage and respect people's privacy around these issues. And totally. also sometimes it helps people to talk about these issues. So sometimes that's a conflict, sort of how private do I want to be? How much do I want to share? Do I want to share that I went through IVF and then ended up using a, a donor embryo? Mm-hmm. Um, and how many people do I want to share that part of the picture? Or just do mm-hmm. I just say IVF? And bo- there's not a wrong way, you know, to right. sort of the person in the grocery store. Um, right. Or, you know, I lost a pregnancy and actually it was a termination for medical reasons. Um, but I'm going to, you know, tell the story as a miscarriage because that feels like there's more of a structure. Um, yeah. or societally kind of a, a different societal response to that or, um, yeah. And that I and think brings up its own yeah. challenges, right? Like when you feel like you can't tell your whole story because sure. either it's easier or I'm afraid of how people will receive it and, or I don't think I'll get the same level of support 
or compassion if, you know, it was a medical, a medical abortion due to like a medical necessity, a very difficult choice to make, to be forced to make and how that feels a little bit not as acceptable in the grief realm as like a miscarriage or a stillbirth it can it can be more complicated i th- i think i mean it's always i it's always important for me to hear what are people's own kind of experiences of these losses and um how much do they want to talk about it and with whom and mm-hmm. um uh but yes there can absolutely be and and again it's sort of privacy versus support, uh, or both can be true, right? You can have some privacy and you can have support. So maybe it's okay to not tell the whole story. Um, but maybe there's some people that you do want to know the whole story. Maybe you tell a therapist the whole story or maybe, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm, it's always uh, helpful to have at least a place. Cause again, this goes back to tell the narrative and have an opportunity to create the story for yourself, because sometimes you need to say these things out loud to totally to fully make sense of them for yourself. And if we feel like we don't have access to an outlet, to any outlet for telling the whole story and making that narrative, that therapeutic narrative, then we can sort of, we have this sort of fragmentation that can happen. Like we, like it's just like. Right. And and not be integrated, not having things be integrated as we were using that term. And so maybe it's a journal. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's a journal, maybe it's a partner, a friend, a family member, a therapist, and maybe some people, and people really vary in how much they want to kind of process and how they want to process experience. I hope, I hope I'm not giving the wrong message of, um, you know, one doesn't have to be in a support group or be online, you know, but there are so, there are, I guess the, the good news is there are, there are more ways, um, um, you know, kind of, there's many different kinds of support for processing these experiences and some involve other people and some don't. And yeah. Yeah. And I think we, you know, there's a, this other piece that we could explore, which is how do we talk about this with our kids? Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you are, how do you talk about a loss that happened maybe before your current child was born? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we share that with them? How do we talk about the fact maybe perhaps that your child may not be biologically both parents' child. Mm -hmm. And how do we talk about that? And how do we talk about that in the context of creating the family story and like Mm -hmm. kind of like just like you say the reproductive identity, the reproductive narrative or reproductive story, but like also like the family story and how really in fact all families come, families come in all shapes and sizes. And it's not always what we read in the simple picture books or how we see it in movies and that's that's so important. I'm glad you brought that up too. There's a, a wonderful book, at least that goes into conception, pregnancy, and birth, um, that you might know called "What Makes a Baby." Yes. Do you know that book? Do you have I it? I have it somewhere. It's like in the it's other room. <laughs> I don't have it with me. Um, by Corey Silverberg. So it's just an example. It's a wonderful book with many pictures, and so so you asked a much more nuanced and expansive question. But I guess zooming in. That's like, that's a place, for example, that's a place to start. So let's say um, starting with, uh, 
you know, a, a young child, um, often in, in third party reproduction disclosure in, in the, in now what we know about what it's like to talk about, um, donor, con donor conception, donor conceived people, um, kind of telling early and telling often and telling in a developmentally accessible way, um, mm -hmm. in a way that's inclusive. And there's so many, there's such, there's so much great language to talk about loss. There are books about loss. There are books about different ways of building families and the family yeah. story and someone who wasn't there or someone who is there or how to integrate the idea of a donor or a surrogate um, or, you know, kind of just who's raising you. And I love the mm -hmm. end of that book because it says, who was waiting for you to be born? Right. Yeah. Just, who raised you? Not even, I don't even use the word parent anymore. You know, I mean, it's like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. there's so much language we can use now. There is. It's funny because actually as you're talking to me, there's like, uh, there is a book on my bookshelf that I just grabbed because I love this one. It's called Making a Baby by Rachel Greener and Claire Owen. And it is, I don't know that one. it's so good. I found it like a couple, maybe like a year ago, mm -hmm. an inclusive guide to how every family begins. And it is by far the most inclusive book I've seen Wonderful. on like babies. It talks about cesareans. It talks about different mm -hmm. types of ways that um, like another way that scientists can help people to make babies is to make sure the sperm and the egg meet in a science laboratory and it shows how it's done and it's and and how it's the scientists then put the embryo into the womb of the person who's going to grow the baby. It's really who may or may not raise the baby. You just need, yeah. need somewhere to grow, right? And yeah, um, and the, the language mm -hmm. that they use, the pictures are incredibly diverse and inclusive and the stories of ability and like yes. shape and size and yes. even what happens when a baby is born too soon. Mm -hmm. Why do some babies not grow? It's, this is right. actually a really good book. I'm glad I thought of it. I totally forgot about that one. So we'll put that. That in the sounds show notes great. Too. That sounds great. No, I'm glad you brought that up too. If a baby's born too soon, which by the way, can be a different kind of trauma and loss. Um, Absolutely. Um, and how do you talk about that, that with kids? There really are so many ways to talk to kids in ways that they, I think there, there's a theme, my colleagues and I see that sometimes the, the person telling the story or disclosing is so nervous about how it's going to go. And the kid is like, okay. <laughs> like, and then yeah. maybe like, maybe has a different question later on and the questions will become more sophisticated and varied with time. But a two or a three-year-old, you know, yeah. So and so's one parent, you know, we needed a nice person to help us with, you know, a sperm and an egg. And then, uh, okay, you know, can I go like watch whatever? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes the anticipation of telling it can be so normal. That's so that's really the message mm -hmm. is if it's right. told in it, it's a normal, but it's not an, you know, it's there's to not have secrecy and shame is what we know now associated with the family story. Um, that it can be such an enriching part yeah. of, a, of a story, you know, and kids right. are, and I are think curious. So it's a really good example of what I like to talk about. Like it's the how, not the what, <laughs> like mm -hmm. what we end up saying isn't really that important one way or the other to our kids. How we say it is what really ultimately matters. Right. And so if we can sort of normalize and talk about it early and often and in doses that feel attuned to what our kid is able to take in that particular moment in their development right. or in their day. Right. Then, and we just answer the questions that they ask just right. that and leave it and at sort that. of meeting and, them there. Right. Right. Yeah. And like follow their lead, but also right. have like a tone and a body language and a mm -hmm. facial expression that is 
you know, oh, what a great question. I'm so glad you asked. You know, right. let me give you the the smallest, most relevant piece of information that's that answers that specific question and then see what you want to do with that. Exactly. And that your child may very well be like, okay, great, when's dessert? What, what are, you know, where's my Play-Doh? Um, or they might be like, oh, wait, how does that work? And tell me more. And, and then you follow their lead. And again, you just keep answering just the question that they've asked with, with accuracy, but like appropriate language. I think like, you know, our kids can handle a tremendous amount of information if we deliver it in a way that's appropriate and tuned to them. That's exactly, and you can do that with death and loss. This is like a, I'm ending on this. You you, you can do that with um, death and loss too. That's their weight, their words to describe it. It's okay, you know. To and mommy was sad, and you know, and also I'm so happy to be at your school program today. Or you know, um, mm-hmm. there are ways, yeah. to, and that's exactly right. You know, just sort of dosing what's developmentally appropriate and sort of seeing what's asked and not overwhelming a child. Um, uh, you know, but, but also being curious and being right. open and to also not questions. projecting our own trauma right. onto them. Right. Right. Because they right. didn't experience what we experienced. Right. Even though we're talking about the exact same event, right? right. They are getting it fresh. And so we can give them just information that's not tinged with our own pain and grief and fear and all the other things. It's very hard to do. And I certainly suggest perhaps getting support on how to do that if it's challenging because I don't want people to assume that because I'm saying it's very simple that it's easy. It's totally not, especially if we have experienced a lot of trauma around those experiences for ourselves. Like to be able to separate that out from what we share with our child and how we share with our child is not an easy thing to do. So like that's certainly something like I would imagine you probably help people with. Sure. Absolutely. And having a space for yourself um, to be able to not then kind of, um, yes, project or create. Yeah. So, you know, if people are listening to this and they're like, I have recognized myself in some of these experiences that we've been talking about, um, or maybe they're going through it and they've went through it in the past or they're going through it now, like what would be like one takeaway you would want people to walk away from this episode with? I think there's a, that there's a language, um, there are ways to get through this, that there, if you're experiencing something, it's likely that someone else has experienced at least something similar, not, you know, your unique story, but that there are ways of moving through these experiences, moving with these experiences is maybe even more accurate. And other people who have gone through similar experiences or other people who say, you know, this thing happened to me and there's no narrative for me out there. You know, people are Mm -hmm. talking a lot more about a lot of these topics and I'm so, and I'm so pleased about that. And also there are many nuances of these experiences that of course aren't, or just kind of can't be talked about or as well understood, or maybe they're less common. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and and that there and that there's support and there are ways of there's language for these experiences and there are ways to get through it. Yeah, yeah, that it's really painful, but also there's like a universality in that pain. Like people have experienced loss, people have experienced grief, and you're never alone in that. 
I think that, yeah, I think that does help some people. I think some people, it, 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 at the same time, it can also be, it is so private and unique. So yeah. it's sort of both and. Right? Definitely. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like too, like that there are ways, there's a lot of different ways to get, you know, live with it. Yes. And, and different, continue to live with it. Yes. And different and making meaning and different strategies work for different people. And some people might want to do a walk or, you know, you know, um, once some sort of like, a, I, I meant like a, you know, some sort of, they contribute to an organization or they. Right. Like a commemorative or, or like fundraiser kind of. Right. Walk. Or some people might, uh, you know, um, have uh, plant a tree. Some people might have jewelry made. Some people, um, you know, might have an album or some people might uh, talk about it with other people. I mean, they're just, and there, and there are some, some culturally based and faith based ways of moving through this as well. Um, and I bring those in just because those are, you know, people often lean on those um, ways of, of uh, those support mechanisms um, in other times of grief and there are ways mm-hmm. to do it with this kind of grief too. And not everyone, and that doesn't work for everyone, but also, some people find that meaningful and they, they don't know it's possible an option or yeah. Um, yeah. To talk to Definitely. a clergy person or to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, but again, not, not necessarily everyone, but. Um, right. But I yeah. think, yeah, that's helpful to remember. Like there's a lot of different ways to find support around this. Right. Right. Um, postpartum support international would be a good resource too, I would think. Yes, PSI has some wonderful support. Resolve, which is the National Infertility um, Advocacy Support Organization, and there are other very specific organizations, specifically around perinatal loss, neonatal loss, um, termination experiences, including for medical reasons. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show notes. It's somewhere to start. It's certainly somewhere to start. Yeah. Yeah. And if people want to know a little bit more about the work you do or reach out to you, um, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so my website's just um, drsharabroffman.com. And, you know, I'm happy to be in touch even to answer questions or to point people towards resources as well. Um, so even um, if people are out of state or, you know, have a friend that needs a website, I mean, I'm happy to uh, to be a resource. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this with us. This is, I think, very helpful. And, you know, it's a hard topic to talk about, but I think yes. it's a good practice for us to, to do that as much as we can. Well, thank you so much. If you are experiencing something similar to these things we discussed right now, I really hope this episode helps you to feel seen and supported And if you feel like you might need some additional support, I encourage you to reach out to a mental health professional who is trained in perinatal mental health. As we mentioned in this episode, Postpartum Support International has a directory of local clinicians so you can find someone in your area that has been trained in these techniques. And if you're in New York State and you're interested in therapeutic services, you can reach out directly to my group practice, Upshur-Bren Psychology Group for a free phone consultation. During that call, we can assess your unique needs and suggest a mental health plan we feel would be most beneficial for you. To reach out and to learn more, go to upshurbren.com. That's U-P-S-H-U-R-B-R-E-N.com. Until next week, don't be a stranger. 